it's not about being a visionary, but about having a long view. It's not about coming up with ideas as much as it is about having structures that you filter things through because ideas come and go all the time. The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew, and there are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit, yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to the dirt. Today's guest is going to blow your mind, taking things to a whole new magnitude, eclipsing many other episodes. And now he's kind of rolling his eyes at me due to all the outer space references. (laughs) But seriously, joining me today is a true expert in space safety and transparency. Yes, indeed, a space you probably didn't even know existed, but it does. And it's huge. So huge that he's attracted some of the best early stage investors into his company. But that doesn't mean he hasn't had his fair share of trials and tribulations along the way. So today we're going to dive deep into strategy from data strategy to space strategy to strategy of changing the world. So without further ado, Sergio Gallucci, co-founder of Scout, welcome to the dirt. Thank you so much for having me, Jim. Really, really, really enjoy the opportunity to be real about the the crucible, I would say, uh, of entrepreneurship, and also, you know, the the really amazing outcomes that I think it can have from from not just the institution of entrepreneurship, but also kind of adopting ideas of entrepreneurship and and processes of entrepreneurship into everything that people do. So, yeah. Preamble aside, yet uh, I guess I'll go, go over kind of my background. You know, I'm Sergio Gallucci. I'm originally from Brazil. I moved to the U.S. in 2005, and I lived in New York City for a couple of years. I went to college in at Clarkson University. I got a bachelor's there. I went to grad school at Penn State and uh, worked on uh, a lot of space stuff there. But actually, my my entry into the space industry was through entrepreneurship. I worked at a company called Deep Space Industries back in the day, uh, which was um, focused on asteroid mining, uh, precursor technology development. And I started out doing a lot of space systems work. And over the years, I've gotten my hands on pretty much every single type of space system that there is and kind of built up a really broad kind of span span of knowledge uh, across different space disciplines. And at Scout now, I'm the CTO and I drive the technical strategy as well as our product roadmap and really am driving us forward from an R&D capture and and kind of product development and deployment perspective to our our in-space services, products, and capabilities to make space safer, more transparent, more sustainable, but also uh, more resilient, actually. And I can get into the nitty gritties of that, but in a general sense, that's what I'm about. That's what Scout is about. Yeah, no, that's great, man. And I won't hold it against you that you're from Penn State. 
Just kidding. I'm a Wisconsin guy. I I somehow find every Penn State grad, whether they work for my company or we a client or on the podcast, it is unreal. So it's not a surprise that you're from Penn State. Great school, Nitty Lions. But but uh, it's really awesome that since graduating, the the work that you've done has really all kind of been connected to to space in in some way, shape, or form. Is that part of in, what was ingrained in you as growing up that you wanted to do that or you know what? How did that come to be? So I, I am I, I am not a space geek. I am not somebody that you know looked up at the stars growing up and was really excited about that or wanted to be an astronaut. Yeah. For me, I, I feel like it's uh, I have a much more kind of philosophical connection to it. How I got into it is because I've always pursued ways to make the world a better place. My personal hero is Norman Borlaug, who is essentially the the father of the Green Revolution. His focus was on essentially GMO development early on and also improving and making more sustainable practices for agriculture and deploying those across the world. He's a person that has affected billions of people by the work that he did at this early stage of a field by by really pioneering in it. And the work that I did in undergrad started out uh, focused on sustainable energy. And I was working on uh, wind energy research, solar research. And actually, my, my first research program was focused on growing algae in landfill leachate. So actually, a growing algae in the juice that seeps out of a landfill. Hmm. Uh, it's the most disgusting, condensed, horrific thing you can imagine. And I was trying to work on biofuel research there. These things I worked on, and eventually I, I ended up in space because they have the potential to change everything. And I I look at the world around me and and I see problems. I see opportunities and and I see things that, things that I wish were better, honestly, just, I think it's a, it's a pretty basic kind of idea, but, but frankly, development in the space field, space is a force multiplier. The ways to contribute to a better world are not just to feed people, for example, but they are also to work on a, on a transmission system that'll go into a tractor that'll till a field. It also might be working on a satellite that can monitor an area and determine where is the best place to plant uh, to most reliably produce crops. For me, I think that today, especially via GPS, communication networks, uh, earth imaging, climate research, meteorology, land management, space touches everything. And being able to contribute to a field that will essentially fundamentally affect the rest of human history it is is what really got me what really gets me excited uh, because I, I, for me it's about what can I do to make the world a better place and I found that my niche my uh, the way that I could contribute best was to work on these space systems and kind of push push innovation in areas that needed it there yeah there's this trend of sustainability in everything that you've done right and sustainability meets space is is kind of your why it sounds like it, it really is it's something that people don't think about you know space sustainability has come out as a as a focus in the news recently with pushes by by NOAA and the Department of Commerce by the FCC and now more recently with the orbits kind of kind of build being discussed space sustainability is something that pragmatically to look at it from a pragmatic perspective is becoming more of a concern and more of an interest because we are already at the point that we're starting to see the effects of our actions. 
And now we have to contend with those. Uh, space is a very dynamic environment. You can't just be siloed from the, the, the impacts of your actions in space. Like you can perhaps be on earth because things don't move around. You know, you dump trash somewhere and it'll migrate to a patch in the Pacific Ocean. And if you're not affected by that, you don't really understand it. Uh, but if you're in space, you're always moving and you might you might end up in the adjacency of something that you've done in the past that might come back and get you. And so that's honestly, today, it's increasingly relevant because collisions are a concern. People are scared about losing fundamental infrastructure that everyone relies on every day. You're not going to be able to go to a gas station and use your card to buy gas, to pump gas. All the systems are going to break down if GPS is not available. For example, like this is something that is like a an existential threat to, to society today and how we operate. And so we really, now we care the same way that folks care, you know, about, about environmental damage when it happens in their backyard. So space yeah, is everybody's backyard, I guess you could say, if I, if I wanted to be corny about it. No, but it, it's, it's, it's corny first, but, but it's also real, right? You think space of space as this, as this distance outside of what we live in today, right? And it's the next level, if you will. But in reality, satellites are how we operate on this level <laughs> and satellites are in space. And you don't really think about that until you start to actually get a little corny and understand what's happening and how things run from a technology perspective. So, I mean, that's real. It, space is less than 100 miles away. Yeah, it's, it's right here. You know, it's nearby. It's, it's the next city over. And, and, you know, and you are getting stuff from it all the time. So, yeah. Yeah. Perspective. So, so yeah, great perspective. So what are some steps that people need to take in order to operate sustainably? I think that you know, honestly the the steps are already laid out and I think a lot of folks already understand those steps. It's really a matter of how it, it's a matter of how long a view you want to take. For me I'm very much of a long view kind of person to operate sustainably in space is something that we will only get to 100% of when we have systems that are built in orbit using space you know using space based resources and then are decommissioned in orbit and then recycled into other space systems once they are no longer operational or once they've passed some sort of threshold of operational efficacy this is something that you know th there is a lot of emergent uh, industries working towards and the pilot programs being being built out from a debris remediation and capture that is you know the first step towards utilization of that debris or that random space object that you grab that you grab to actually process into something useful towards manufacturing from that material that you processed and then decommissioning in different ways. Right now, the way that we decommission satellites is we do one of two things. We dump them into the atmosphere. Sorry, one of three things, actually. We forget about it. Uh, we dump it into the atmosphere or we uh, put it into a graveyard orbit. And I guess we can also dump it into other atmospheres too. Sometimes, because sometimes that's just the end, the end of a mission is that it's going to get closer to things. Like for example, Juno, you know, like some things just dump it into Jupiter and see, see what you see about Jupiter there. That doesn't really, that's not really a, a, at a scale that really affects us uh, or affects the worlds outside of Earth really right now. Uh, although we have had collisions with the moon 
And that's been uh, pretty significant because things have crashed into the moon that were were actually anthropogenic. Like we made these things and now they're crashing into the moon and we can't get away from that anymore. That's a thing that's happened. But we're also getting to the point where dumping things back into the atmosphere is not going to be sustainable for perpetuity because mm-hmm. we have hit the, the point where now we're actually seeing non-negligible amounts of the total influx of uh, certain materials that are entering the atmosphere every year uh, are now human-made. So for example, aluminum that's entering the atmosphere, usually it was just kind of drifting in, miscellaneous flux, micrometeoroids, stuff generated by the sun or by other stars and way in the past that's just drifting you know, through, through the universe, enters the atmosphere, burns up, and now it's part of our whole earth system. Well, now some of that is stuff that we've thrown up there and now it's just coming back down and we made it, which is, it's one of those things that is, is, is I think a little bit sobering uh, that, that now we are even this huge, huge system of the earth itself. There's a non-negligible impact that we're making on the, on the holistic earth system based mm-hmm. on stuff that we're putting out in the space and dumping back in. Uh, graveyard orbits are also fundamentally, you're just putting it somewhere else. But we, you know, in the next couple of years, there's going to there's gonna have to be the point where we're starting to reassess the, the things that we've decommissioned and start reusing them for other stuff. And there's a lot of great teams actually working again, working towards that problem. So how does how does data fit into this? How does how does that connect to the discussion? So data and and actually how I think how Scout really fits into this is that Space is, a, is, a, is an environment full of gaps of awareness. Uh, we communicate not continuously with our satellites. Uh, we send a beacon up, they send a beacon down. We wait around for a while until the next ground station can talk to it and it sends a beacon down. Of course, if it's like a geosynchronous or geostationary satellite, it's just kind of essentially sitting in place over one area. So it can pretty much continuously communicate. But what happens if you can't talk to it anymore? Or what happens if the thing that you're kind of focusing on is not a satellite that you're operating, but you know an asteroid or just a random piece of debris. Those objects, generally, we rely on inference about where something is, direct observation, or sorry, direct observation, A, inference based on extrapolating what the observations look like, or it tells us where it is. You know, We might have a rough order of magnitude awareness of where it's supposed to be, and then it's just like, hey, by the way, here's where I'm at. Here, here's my status. Here's how I'm doing. And we can update our models. The problem is once it stops telling us where it is, or if it moves, which means that now our models are not valid anymore because mm. something has happened that we couldn't expect because it shifted around, which means it's not in a proper trajectory that we were propagating out. So when decisions are made outside of our awareness or when actions occur or events occur that are outside of our awareness. Like I got hit by a rock. So I got nudged over to the side a little bit. And now my trajectory is entirely different. Then the system has to accommodate that. Uh, Our awareness of the universe has to accommodate that. We have to look around and find where's that dot of light that's supposed to be over here. What's going on? And there's some fundamental things that we cannot get away from. The sun is very bright, the moon is very big, and you know, the earth gets in the way uh, when you're trying to look at things in space all the time because they pass over and then they're over the horizon. You can't see it anymore, so you have to rely on the next one. So one of the ways that 
we are looking at the problem of, of space sustainability, of space infrastructure, assuring that that is safe, is how do we have as many eyes up there as possible that can continuously provide information on not just the things that we care about, but the things that we don't care about yet, the things that are just transiting, wandering around. So that's, that's I think, a, a big piece there, filling those gaps by, by proliferating networks uh, of systems that are not monolithic, that are not reliant on being in one place at one time, but really having a huge span of, of space to uh, look at and just add to that slight picture that we have. The, or the old term for, for awareness of things in space was space situational awareness. Uh, we've kind of transitioned in the U.S. to space domain awareness, but frankly, uh, like it is a situational awareness problem. Uh, we, we do not know what's situated around us at any given time unless we're specifically looking for it. So maybe, just maybe, we should look around some more in a, in a way that is scalable. So who's who's caring about this now? Is it is it just governments, or are you seeing there there be some you know mindset change with commercial as well? There's definitely been changing mindsets for the past couple of years. the The old school philosophy is that we use lessons learned in space to drive what we're going to do next. What lesson did we learn about this last thing that we did? And if you didn't learn a lesson, then you can't act on it. And for, for a long time, we did not care about the space environment because what was there to care about? We did not care about the breed because what was there to care about? You know, of course, there's, we've done research uh, since the 50s on, on these aspects, but f- fundamentally, it hasn't been relevant. Nowadays, we have a lot more awareness about the debris objects. We have had a couple of collisions with the Brie objects. And we've also had a growth in demand for operations that are now on the on the path to this space sustainable future, where, where spin space operations can just stay in space and just continue developing themselves instead of just moving something somewhere else after it's done. And that I think has been one of those uh, drivers of that a- alongside the actual like awareness of the problems uh, that, that, that are risks there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Collision avoidance requires situational awareness. Here's another point. Being economically viable requires not wasting too much money on things you don't need to do. If you don't have good enough situational awareness provided to you at the right time with a high enough degree of confidence, you might avoid something that isn't there. You might avoid something that's not going to hit you. Ergo, you might waste money. Uh, on a maneuver that you didn't need to do. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, you might waste propellant that you didn't need to waste. And propellant in the you know normal mode of operations in space uh, up till now, really, is something that is a very, very finite resource. You cannot, you cannot fill the tank of gas back up. My, you know, my, my peers, my friends at, at OrbitFab are focused on how do we refuel satellites? To, and how do we deploy this, this architecture to make things refuelable, to change the mode of operation in space so that we stop throwing away our cars the moment the gas run dry, runs dry? And unlike from the scout perspective, how do we stop looking down at our phones when we're on the highway moving at 10 kilometers per second? Yep. Yep. So we can look around and have situation awareness. So 
let's bring this into what you guys are what you guys are doing now at Scout and some of the some of the great work that you've that you've been working on, but also, you know, you're getting a real company together now. Like you guys are growing. <laughs> it wasn't always that easy. It wasn't always high growth mode. Talk to me about you know some of the road getting here. So this is where uh, I get into the entrepreneurship, just like the the tragedies, the trials, the tribulations to success, and then eventually I was proven right all along. And you know our vision was was a hundred percent right from day one. Just nobody got it. They just didn't get it. <laughs> uh, frankly, it, it, it has. There have been a lot of trials, but. Like I said earlier, it's a it's a crucible. We boil off the stuff that boil off the fat, right? It, it get the stuff that's not supposed to be here, the stuff that doesn't really contribute to, you know, a long term vision has to go away, and we have to really distill uh, uh, our vision, uh, our roadmap, our ideas, to the point that we can actually get get to the point where we can grow. Uh, you have to refine your you have to refine your recipe before you can start selling hundreds of it, you know, at a restaurant. We started out in 2019. My co-founder reached out to me to try to get technical perspective and uh, technical feedback on ideas that he was kind of working through. And uh, I was like, this is really interesting. You know, these are these are some interesting problems here. Uh, let's work on some spins on these ideas and some of these challenges that, that you're tracking. And 2019 to 2021 was this heads down working towards working on the the kind of the building blocks for what scout is today we iterated heavily on a lot of different concepts we looked at and researched a lot of different problems that people were facing in the space industry and we looked at vectors for actually addressing those a satellite dies in space who cares about it and how can we help that satellite not die or help the broader space and space domain, space uh, industry, get back up from that from that hit, uh, or take that punch more effectively. That's one element. You know, there is debris out there. It's a risk. People are reacting to it. How do we help them react better, or maybe how do we help them mitigate the risk by making the debris go away, or how do we help them be able to work around that risk? You know, with more security and more assurance. But hey, you're not going to get hit by the debris. It's okay. Keep doing your thing. So who cares about these things? That's how we had to approach it. And universally, honestly, you know, everyone that you ask about uh, in, in the space industry is going to say, oh, space debris are, are, are a concern. Oh, yeah. Space situational awareness, space domain awareness, that's a concern. Uncertainties in how spacecraft fail, huge risk. Absolutely. It's a big problem. And, and so we worked for the first two years, really on the the what's the basis how 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 do we how do we solve the problems that we're seeing what what are what are our means of doing so my co-founder has a regulatory background and he is on, on the advisory committee for commercial remote sensing uh, for noaa mine is much more technical i'm really you know he does have a technical background as well mine is really focused on space operations risks to space operations and really kind of the, the broad side picture of of what space is and what space does and what you do in space. And it was it was really tough. Honestly, it, it was just a it was a really really tough time for those first 2 years. We worked through you have to iterate heavily 
on things that you really care about and you have to start, you have to learn to let it go because it's not the right way. Coming from working within academia, you know, it's tough to let go of your hypothesis, right? And just embrace the the uncertainty, the chaos. Mm -hmm. Uh, But honestly, that is, that is something that's really important and embracing the chaos, embracing uncertainty and accepting that what really matters is getting the job done is something that uh, I think has been kind of enshrined within within our team as we've grown in, in this culture of challenge, which is that I might be a subject matter expert, but I can be wrong. And if you call me out on something, why would I ever just say, don't question me? That is the, the kind of collaboration environment that that is super important to have at that stage and also as, as we grow out. Because I need to be able to back up the claims. I need to be able to back up the analysis and, and also the vision. Why is this vision important? Not just because I say so, but because there's a wealth of data on it, because people really care about it. They talk to us about it. They ask me questions about how we're solving it and how we're helping them. And up until twenty mid-2021, it was just uh, Eric, my co-founder, and I. And then now we have over a dozen people. And that has been pretty wild to to deal with. I was really, really scared and I was really worried about how growth would work. But now I'm just really excited about about continuing growth. I'm just really excited to have more people supporting this vision and more people that can contribute to it with their own perspectives to challenge our approach and distill it even further. It's wild when that happens, isn't it? Yeah. 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 it's, It's a whole mentality shift. I think after, you know, like the third or fourth person that joins the team, it's like, well, okay, it's happened now. We've got more people here and things are going better. Now it'll just keep going better. There's no more, more jealousy, you know, about it. No more trying to like hold it close. There's no point to that. You know, everything has to, we have to be very open. We have to be very real, very honest and very tra- transparent in, in all things uh, and, and be ready to, to challenge and be challenged. And, and that's one way, the best way that I know a culture of challenges, the best way that I know to ensure excellence. Yeah. Yeah. And when you guys were iterating and building and, you know, obviously getting to the point where you've got a team now behind you or beside you, I should say, what did that look like from an iteration perspective? Was it collaboration with government? Was it collaboration with commercials? Was it just collaboration with, with subject matter experts? Like what, what did that look like as you guys were building out the perfect formula? So we started out, you know, in this thing, we did do things, I think, f- fairly properly. Before you develop a product, you do research and development. And so we worked with, yes, subject matter experts, but also uh, end users and prospective customers and also collaborators to explore what the boundaries of the problems were uh, and not, well, the opportunities, uh, what they looked like as well as how would we fit into that what what could fit into that into that slot into that opportunity and what can fit into that opportunity is not necessarily the shape of the product but it is something that you know you can use to derive requirements i'm a systems engineer i love codifying these kinds of things i love building systems and, and giving form to ideas that way because that that's how you get to a streamlined process for me, everything falls into place when I have enough data. The data management element is something, you know, if you just have a, a pile of stuff in front of you, how do you parse that? 
But if that is now sorted out intrinsically into different things that, that contribute to each other and you know give you a broader site picture together, there, there we go. So it was very much early on relying on peers as well as prospective customers and end users. Many of those came from the government side, but also a lot of those really uh, actually early on were on the commercial side. One thing that I don't think people outside of the space industry really understand is that space is just an amazing environment to work in because of its collaborative nature. It's not about, I built this thing. It's better than this other guy's thing. The other guy's thing sucks. Buy mm-hmm. my thing instead. It's, you know, of course, that's kind of the, the, the gist of capitalism in some ways. Like, oh, yeah, you, 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 offer, you have the best offering. You try your best to market it the best way. But there is a shared vision, I think, that's not that you can't really reduce down to, I want to make a profit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, not, that's not it. <laughs> it's not about, I want to make a profit. It's about the shared vision of, like I said, supporting everything else that comes after, about being on the shoulders of giants before and offering another set of shoulders for people to stand back on, on top of. People have people want to do things better. It's I think one of the ways that this is represented really interestingly is how seamlessly a lot of companies um, you know, kind of merge and partner and compete in, in, in different ways. ULA, United Launch Alliance, is a conglomerate of companies that in many other ways are, are competitors initially, and they're working together to do launch together. That's the way that they can do it best. You have Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin in Boeing that are direct competitors in a lot of different ways, but they can collaborate on programs all the time. And a lot of different government adjacent and the kind of defense adjacent uh, segments see some of this happen. In defense, you see that because there's a core directive, there's a prime directive from the defense department for building the best capability. But in space, that didn't really exist uh, until fairly recently. And so people have been working within this culture in space for just making things better and just advancing society forward. And that is phenomenal. You know, that is in so, so energizing. I think that when I go out to a conference or when I'm meeting with peers or when I'm meeting with competitors or potential competitors or people that want to really like figure out what I'm doing and, you know, do it better or challenge my approach. There is very rarely people are doing it in bad faith. And, and, and I, I think I'm always energized by that. So collaboration was one of the key ways that we were able to, to kind of build anything and, and how we're getting to this point initially commercially, but also uh, now with a lot of government support as well. Yeah, that sort of collaboration or competitors being more of co-opetition is is really great to see and is I've actually heard that a fair bit in a lot of sectors connected to sustainability whether space sustainability or sustainability right here in our backyard although I guess space is our backyard too but <laughs> that's really great to hear how does some of that coopetition or collaboration connect to any of the larger companies I know you mentioned Boeing Lockheed that that other people might know, like maybe SpaceX, is SpaceX is part of that co-opetition or are they kind of in a world of their own because of how highly funded they are? 
I wouldn't say it's uh, how highly funded they are definitely helps. But SpaceX didn't fall fall out of the skies, you know, uh, do, doing a controlled reentry out of nowhere. Right. Uh, the, they they were built out through a lot of the frameworks that most companies are, are are following these days. Still, they were regulars at the small sat conference every year. I remember, I think in 2015, I saw this random. Uh, I was I was at the small sat conference in, in Utah, which is really. A lot of people that are in the new space segment that work on like small systems or even in space research as well, they come together in Logan, Utah for just a week of just kind of hang, hanging out and kind of seeing what's going on, presenting papers and learning about the developments of their peers, competitors, collaborators, et cetera, customers. And in 2015, I remember checking out this poster presentation about this a team from SpaceX that was out of Washington doing spacecraft development. That would eventually become Starlink, and I'm like, huh, you know, everyone, you know, they they came from the same cradle, and we're all coming from it from the same place, which is there's there's a problem that we're trying to resolve. It's it's very rare to find anybody that can successfully uh, achieve being standoffish from day one without having collaborators, without having uh, peers, without kind of building building up this this uh, this environment themselves either it's with government partners government customers government supporters or commercial ones and in in space spaces fundamentally a, a dual you know it it you have to you have to work with both sides because the vision is really the same both sides being gov and and, and commercial yeah 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 what about uh what about collaboration with any alien life forms you guys reached that point yet I personally have not collaborated with any alien life forms. <laughs> I mean, I you know I, I am technically an immigrant alien. Well, not anymore. I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen after being naturalized. But you know that's that has has different weight to it, right? <laughs> um, yeah, when you go back for Carnival, <laughs> <laughs> I've actually never been to Carnival. Where I grew up in the Northeast, there's something called Carnatal because I grew up in Natal, okay. and so Natal also means Christmas. And so uh, instead of having Carnival and the contemporary planned timeline it actually happens in the middle of summer which is in the middle of december uh in the southern hemisphere and yeah. so they, we just have a we just have a random carnival in the middle of in the middle of december there so i, I saw that plenty but never actual uh carnival i, I digress uh, <laughs> there is good there's good work going on in brazil I, I wouldn't say it's like an entirely different universe there either or anywhere else really i think that what is actually something salient that people uh, forget is is multinational, uh, international collaboration in space. That is something that have, has been from pretty early on. During the Cold War, we collaborated. You know, the U.S. collaborated with the Soviet Union. Mm. That that is a continuing trend. Collaboration is is really important to to ensuring that we have viable operational norms, that we have support systems in place that can be applied for for anything in space, and the kind of the you know, if we look at you know, wacky scenarios of alien life forms or whatever, or less wacky scenarios like planetary defense from an asteroid, everybody can contribute to that. If if uh, if you detect something that's coming towards the Earth, that might be a threat. That is something that you can share information on. Being able to see it in the first place is a is, is part of the questions there. But building these kinds of capabilities helps everybody across the world. And so, for me, I think we'll get to we'll get to alien cooperation, you know, extraterrestrial alien cooperation. But we're I think that we've got a pretty good precedent, although there is more work to be done with international, uh, terrestrial alien, I guess, collaboration and coordination. Yeah, fair, very fair point. Very fair point. 
All right. You are an engineer to your core, right? Your space core, your human core. And so to end us off here, I got a few core questions for you around your growth as both a founder and scout as a company. So the the first one is, what is a core KPI or metric, probably the number one core metric that you are relentlessly focused on as a founder? So it's changed. It, it, is, it is a KPI that has changed depending on the stage of the company and where it has been. So one of the key, the, the most important KPI, uh, and, and of course, being an engineer, being a CTO in space, that has broader connotations. Space is, I think, a little interesting because as a space, uh, in the space segment, being a CTO means that you're working with capture, R&D, technology, technology strategy, product, you know, the, all these things fall into the ages because technology is not so simple. You know, there's, there's broader implications to that. And so, and also being a founder, I guess, complicates that further, right? So one of the things that was, has been the most important for me today, it's not a KPI that I'm, that I'm tracking actively myself. Uh, we've got, we've expanded the team to push it, but customer interviews last year was the biggest KPI during the Techstars program, the Techstars Space Accelerator. We were guided. We got a lot of, you know, advisement on how do we build a business? How do we build a business? And honestly, we put it in a crucible, throw it in the fire, work work out what it needs to be. And customer interviews are the most important thing. I think I personally had like 150 to 200 customer interviews that I did over uh, the summer and early fall of 2021. And that was a nonstop wild ride of refining our business case, refining our technological case, sometimes getting beaten up on a technical level too, because interviews with customers sometimes means technical customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was the most important one. How many interviews and how much data was I getting in? And now moving forward, the most important one is, I guess, dependent on the on the leg that I'm looking at, this kind of stool that I sit on. If it's on the R&D perspective, you know, it comes down to proposals, R&D uh, efforts, collaborations, something along those lines. On the product development, you know, it comes down to demos, sales, sure helps, but also iterations on designs, and and you know, on the technology roadmap, I think it's, uh, you know, there is there are still elements of customer interviews and uh, feedback coming into that 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 strongly drive it. So I think it really has to come down to there is not one one size fits all answer. Yeah, uh, even from even just even just within myself today. Right. Right. No, that's that's great. I mean, yeah, customer interviews in general, so pivotal towards everything you build and all the metrics down the line. So that that's great to hear. So what what is a top tip for growth stage founders like yourself at your stage of a business, let's just say, a growth stage? I would say that it's not about being a visionary, but about having a long view. It's not about coming up with ideas as much as it is about having structures that you filter things through because ideas come and go all the time. An idea is not something that's going to build your business up, but something that you review, something that your team can review because you work it through proper structure that can distill an idea into underlying technology stack elements or potential collaboration opportunities, bundled deals, 
or you know uh, even a whole like new kind of BD offering that you can start pushing. It does me no good. It does my team no good if I just come out and say, you know, I think we should really start selling like glitter packets for satellites. I think that's a really good opportunity. What? <laughs> it comes down to having a framework to parse those things. And it's like, well, you know, I've been hearing a lot of information about problems with uh, decoration of satellites. And there's, we've got some good friends with, that are within this deployable segment. They know how to deploy stuff and they know how to open up packets. And so maybe we could fill, you know, we could use leverage these guys and work on the decoration gap and help like with something else, I'm sure, you know, by, by deploying these glitter packets on satellites that they can then open like this on a, on a satellite system. You know, like even that's half-baked. Systems engineering takes you through stages. You go through different design reviews. You have mission reviews, concept reviews, design reviews, testing reviews. And I think that using that systematic process is a good way to make things more coherent. And I think that consistency, work ethic, that's where you get away from the the, the heroism of, of like being super early stage. And that's how you also stop having to be a hero by instituting processes that other people can support you on. And me being a visionary is beside the point. I don't have to be a visionary if I have a lot of people that share vision with me because all of us together are better than one person. So Bottom focus, line. focus, strategy, connect the short term to the long term and bring on the right people. I love yeah. it. I love it. All right. So what about, here's one, a book or a podcast that's helped you grow as a founder. So I think it comes back to my, my thesis, right, of, of, of this culture of challenge and ensuring excellence through that and getting as much data as possible. I really enjoyed the pitch podcast and that is about, uh, and that, that is something that I have kind of gotten away from because now I'm not in the, in the trenches as it were for fundraising the way that we were previously, but in that one founders come up and they just pitch their concept, pitch their ideas, pitch their vision to investors that are ready to go. You know, Shark Tank is, is, is fun television. I watch it when I'm in a hotel or something, but I think that there is much more long form. There's, there's so much value that you can derive from watching somebody try really hard to sell something, whatever it is, and seeing them be challenged at every turn and seeing how they fail or succeed. There's strategies there. There's lessons learned there. And that, that was, it's also really, I think, enjoyable to see people that are in, in the same journey that I am struggling through the same stages that, that, that I'm working through. So that, that is a podcast that I think was really enjoyable for me. And in terms of, from a literary perspective, I don't know, I think that it's important to em embrace uncertainty and how complex the world is around you. So I really enjoy Against the Day and Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon. I might be saying his name wrong, but very, very highly recommend literature that is challenging and that, that represents, I think, effectively a world that's much, much bigger than one's own perspective. Terrific. All right. Here's a fun one. When all is said and done, what is going to be the title of your autobiography? <laughs> you know, I used to joke about this with my, with my college roommate. Yeah, it, it's, it's all about trials and tribulations. Honestly, things go wrong. I have to get back up. The, I, I think it's, it's going to be it's something along the lines of success, failure, perseverance, 
you know, the Sergio Gallucci story is, is about that. You know, sometimes I succeed. A lot of times I fail. And the best way to ensure success, you know, the, as I see it, is to fail a lot and learn from that. Nice. Nice. All right. Last one here for you. Who would play you in a movie of your life? What actor? I have no idea. I think I, I actually, I really enjoy uh, the honesty and the commitment of Nicolas Cage as an actor. He always commits 100%. And I think that there is intensity to that. And, and for me, I think that I, I focus on intensity because I really focus on trying to get to the point of what I'm trying to do and the message that I'm trying to get across. So somebody that, that I really kind of respect that way, I guess would be a, an example, not because he looks like me or anything like that, but, but because I, I think that in, in, in an actor that I would want, I guess, representing my core of like this kind of honesty, perseverance, and, and kind of really working through a dynamic environment, but kind of centering myself on that vision. I think somebody like Nicolas Cage is, is somebody that I respect a lot, that I would, that would be, I guess, interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that, that's good. Luckily, Scout is um, a, uh, a great company, an example of probably the early Nick Cage movies of choosing great movies to commit to, unlike the later Nick Cage movies, which, you know, a little bit debatable on how good some of those are, but he does commit. I'll tell you that. Always that commit. Always commit. That is always commit, commit to, to my students. <laughs> to uh, people that I advise, including, you know, folks at other, other early stage companies. Uh, one of my core things that I always push on is always ask a question. If you have it, always try to understand what's going on because there's absolutely such a thing as a dumb question, but that's not the point. You ask a question and you get good data out of it. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point of asking a question is getting data. You know, one of the outcomes for asking a question is that you get the answer you're looking for. Second outcome is that you get insights. You don't get the answer, but you get insights. Maybe that person is telling you, here's the question you should actually be answer asking. Here's an answer to the question that you didn't ask, but you should have asked. Uh, and now you understand things better. Even if you didn't get the question that you wanted answered, answered, you got insights there. The third outcome is that that person is not somebody that you want to be asking questions to because they didn't take you asking a question well. Uh, they gave you something that was not really very useful. It wasn't constructive. And that's still very useful data. Just like when you're talking to a VC, uh, no is a really good answer. It's very useful because that, that lets you move forward. An even better answer is no, and here's why. Right. Uh, but uh, you know, never be afraid to ask why either if they don't tell yeah, you. Exactly. Yeah. And so for me, committing. 100%, you know, give it your all, try it. And if you fail, well, now you know. That's great, man. So, Sergi, you've given so much to our listeners today. I always try to allow for a little self-promotion here at the end. How can, how can those listening help you out? So if you are planning to fly a satellite in the next couple of years, make sure that it's got eyes on it and uh, make sure that you get them from Scout. <laughs> uh, but, but more broadly, you know, in, in all things that you do, be mindful of your environment. And if you are interested in space, go for it. People within it support each other uh, and it touches everything. And you can come into it as an outsider and learn so much and add value to not just space, but also outside of it. Scout is hiring actively. We've got a bunch of different positions, but also even more that we're not actually you know, posting because it's just 
yeah, yeah, you know, join the team, pursue the vision. We've got great things going on. So please look us up at scout.space. And uh, yeah, that's, I think that kind of co- covers self-promotion, I guess, from this, from this kind of uh, perspective. I, I'm going to throw one more thing because I know that you're about to close out your fundraise, but I think you might have a little bit more room in there to scale up some of the funding round. And is that right? Yes, we are. We have not fully closed out our, our seed fundraise. So if you're uh, an investor looking into the space, looking into the sector, sustainability is a focus. This is this is something you should not miss. And the, the guys are building great, scaling up the team further, scaling up deliverables, and definitely don't hesitate to reach out to Sergio Direct. And uh, what is the best way for listeners to get in touch with you direct if they want to, Sergio? So for listeners... Definitely feel free to reach out to Sergio at scout.space. Happy to chat chat with folks about our technical capabilities, our mission, investment as well. And you can pull in my, my co-founder, Eric, who's driving our fundraise right now, but also general general inquiries, you know, via via info at scout.space is a good way to get to get to uh, everyone that can, you know, route through and move things forward. Sergio, thanks for the time today. Thanks for sharing your dirt. Thanks for dropping your knowledge and have a wonderful day, my friend. You as well. Bye. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.